Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good, good. Thank you for worshiping with us. Do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the first 21 verses of Ephesians 5. And um, I was trying to do the math in my head uh, real quick as I was walking up here. And between being, we're about 11 and a half years old as a church. And then with how long we've been doing multiple services for, I, I think I'm right around like 2,000 or something ser like services that I've been a part of at Harvest. And I'm just going to say that having Missy lead us so beautifully in worship after her video was played, like that's an all-time moment for me um, as a pastor. And so weren't you guys blessed by that? Like it is um, such a privilege to be a part of what God's doing here. And so, you know, I'm already, it's already a 10 out of 10 weekend for me. It can only go downhill from here. So I'm pumped about that. Um, happy bridge construction season, everyone. It's our favorite time of year. I know um, we're all excited about that. So it means the weather's getting warm when the bridge shuts down. So um, we've been working through uh, Ephesians, and I just kind of want to remind you the, the structure of this book. The first three chapters of Ephesians, it's all about the gospel and everything that Christ has done for us. And Paul's like, you've been redeemed, you've been predestined, you've been saved, you're made clean, you've been made alive in Christ. It's like, look at all of these amazing things Jesus has done. And then chapters four through six is how do we live in response to what we've been given in Christ? And one of the things that's different about Christianity than any other world religion is we don't live in a way to merit God's favor or grace. We've already received it in Christ. We live out of an overflow of worship for what God has already done in our hearts, and I think that that's amazing. And um, look at Ephesians 4, if you have your Bibles open, 4.1. I said that this is kind of the transition um, passage or in this whole book, and it says, Therefore, a, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And, and so Paul's like, we need to walk in a manner that's worthy of all that we've been given. And we've talked a lot about that what it means to walk in a manner worthy is to grow up into maturity in faith and in Christ. That just like a baby, if they are healthy, will grow into maturity. When you and I are saved, we're not saved into perfection or maturity. We're saved into spiritual infancy. And we are called to grow together in maturity. And what Paul is going to do in this text in Ephesians 5 is continue to lay out the vision for what does maturity in Christ look like? What are we striving for? And here's the big idea. It's this. It's that Christian maturity happens when right thinking is married to right living. That in order for us to become mature, we've got to think rightly, and then that's got to lead to right action, right? I've used this phrase before, that you do what you do, and you feel what you feel, because you think what you think. And ultimately, it is our minds and what we think that drives our feelings and actions. And what Paul's going to do is lay out four things that we need to know or think rightly about, and that's going to lead to actions that will cause maturity in Christ. Look at verse 1. He says this, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All right, so here's the first thing we need to do. It's very, very simple. We need to know Jesus and walk in loving humility, right? He reminds us of who we are. We are beloved children. And then he says, walk in love as Christ loved us. And then he goes on to clarify it further and gave himself up for us. And here's what I appreciate about what Paul's doing. Love can be such a vague term, can't it? 
right? Like I love to sleep in. I love coffee. I love the Chicago Bulls. I love this church. I love, you know, when it's warm outside. I'm in love with my wife. We say we love so many things. And what Paul's like, it's not some vague idea of love, but he is lasering in the focus on what this love looks like. He's saying it's a self-sacrificing humility. Love like Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Paul's echoing here what he says in Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Church, look here. What Paul is saying as clearly as I can lay it out to you is that if you want to truly follow Jesus and love like Jesus loves, we need to live a life where we are not at the center where people don't bow to our will, where everything is about us, but we need to live to be a blessing to others, to serve others, to think of others as greater than ourselves. It's a mindset that says, I want to live to be a blessing because I've been blessed by Christ. Throw up the next slide. This is a line that I've used before, that the gospel frees us from the prison of being consumed with ourselves. And if we're honest... Um, there is a gravitational force in our hearts that wants to make everything about us, isn't there? Like, I bet you when you woke up this morning, the first thing you thought about was yourself, right? It is in our sinful nature to want to be at the center of the show and of the story. And what I've tried to argue over time is that the more self-consumed we are, the more we make everything about us, the more selfish we are, the more miserable we can become. So I want to play this out in an analogy. So I hope we can be honest this morning at church, even though church can sometimes be a difficult place to truly be honest. But let's play a game. How many of you, raise your hand, if you sometimes struggle with worrying about what others think about you, all right, raise them up high. And you're like, well, if I raise it up, then you're going to see me. Then you're going to think bad about me, right? I'm not trying to cause this spiral, but raise them up. Okay, look, it's everyone. And if their hand isn't raised, they're lying, right? We understand this is how it works. And um, so let's, again, let's be honest. Can we call that what it is? It's pride, isn't it? It's being consumed with ourselves, and it can get so out of control that, that I can see Rafe, you know, whispering something to his wife across the room, and I'll be like, what's he saying about me? You know what I mean? It has nothing to do with me, probably. Like, like there's, there's no issues, but like, it can get that paranoid. So let me ask you this. Let's follow this thread. When you're worrying about what others think about you, give me a thumbs up if it makes you a more happy, joyous, lighthearted person, or give me a thumbs down if it makes you more miserable. Right? It's a thumbs down. The more consumed we are with ourselves, the more miserable we become. So much of the stress and anxiety in our lives happens when we consume ourselves with us. The gospel says that I don't have to worry about my reputation. Think about that. I don't have to worry about my reputation, what you all think of me, because God says I'm forgiven and clean in Christ. I don't have to worry about my future because God is in control and working all things together for my good. I don't have to worry about my present because God is with me and is my comforter and protector and help in time of need. Knowing Jesus frees me from having to earn or impress or work for status, and it frees me to actually think of what's in others' best interests. I'm free to love and serve in Christ. Okay, here's the next thing we need to know. We need to know sin and walk in obedience. 
we need to know sin and walk in obedience. Look at verse 3. It says this, it says, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Okay, so Paul does something really interesting here. When he talks about sin, he's highlighting two specific types of sin. He's highlighting sexual immorality, sexual sin. The Greek word is porneia, where we get our word pornography from, and it's covetousness. And I think he does this for a couple of reasons. First of all, do you see how sexual immorality and covetousness are the exact opposite of the mind we're supposed to have in Christ? Like in Christ, we view others as greater than ourselves and we lay down our wants and our desires and rights for the benefit of others. Sexual immorality and coveting, it's wanting or taking what is not ours to have. It's saying, I want what doesn't belong to me. I want what is not mine. It's the complete opposite of the heart of Christ. And the other reason he uses these two is Paul is showing that sin exists both in action, right? Sexual immorality, adultery is an action, but it also exists in our hearts, coveting. The problem with coveting is, is you can look clean on the outside and do all of the right things. But if I am doing all the right things, but my heart is constantly discontent and jealous and angry and I'm wanting things and I'm dissatisfied and ungrateful. What Paul's saying is, is you're still in darkness. And church, by the way, mature Christians also acknowledge that this darkness resides in all of our hearts, doesn't it? That, that all of the evil we see in others and in the world, that that, that nature, that sin exists in our hearts. And again, we've got this gravitational force that wants us to reject God and make life about ourselves. Like just again, very, very practically, there are days where I come home from work and I don't want to love and serve my family like Christ loves and serves. I want to disengage. I want to be selfish. I want to do my own thing. I need a break, right? So what I need to do is, is I need to pray and I need to be honest and have accountability. I need to go to war with those sinful desires. Okay, so there's three things that we we need to know about sin. The first is its reality. Mature Christians rightly and fully acknowledge the reality of sin. Right? It's funny, in our culture, like, sin's kind of a dirty word, isn't it? Like, if I call someone out on their sin, or if I say someone's a sinner, it's like, how dare you say that? That's so judgmental and so unloving. But Mature Christians acknowledge, yeah, that, that, that sin is real, that God has revealed himself to us, that God has re- revealed his law, and there's a right way to live that honors him, and there's ways where we break that law and dishonor God, and, and that sin causes separation. Look at verse 6. It says, And let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, he's warning the church, there's going to be false teachers that come and their message is going to be that, hey, this sin thing is not a big deal and sexual immorality and covetousness, you can do those things, it's okay. And here's what's crazy. 2,000 years later across the world, 
Do you know that you can go into churches all across America today and they will tell you that God's standard for marriage and sexuality is outdated and no longer applies? Do whatever you want. Be who you want. Love who you want. Marry who you want. Like, like, like that is outdated. It's old. Um, lean into whatever sexuality that you think is best. And the crazy thing is, is you can also go to other churches all across America that will tell you, no, if you believe God and if you have enough faith, what God's going to do is, is he's going to make you rich and he's going to make your life easy and you're going to be healthy. And God is this cosmic ATM and our credit card is faith. And if we just have enough faith, he's going to rain down and shower down blessing on us. And isn't it kind of weirdly comforting to know that the very th same things Paul was warning about 2000 years ago is happening today? Like it's a proof of the truth of God's word. He's like, people are going to come and rebel against this and it's still happening. Mature Christians acknowledge the reality of sin. And, and I would also say this for mature Christians, there's a soberness of sin's power and devastation. It's not something we make light of. It's not something we joke about. We don't live on the edges of sin and see how close to the fire we can get without getting burned. We understand that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And just like a child has a healthy fear of running into the street, we have a healthy fear of the power and devastation that sin would cause in our life and relationships. Here's the next thing we need to know about sin. We need to know it's judgment. Look again at verse 6. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. One of the things Americans hate about Christianity in the Bible is this idea of God's wrath. Like when, I, when the Bible talks about God condemning people to hell or sending people to hell, people are like, I don't accept that. There's no way a loving God could do that thing. And, and they hate the idea of God's wrath. And they hate the idea of God's wrath for two reasons. The first is when we think of wrath, we think of someone throwing a temper tantrum or losing control, right? We think of a three-year-old who's overtired and overhungry and we're going to feel their wrath. They're out of control, they're screaming, they've lost it. Well, you need to understand that's not what Paul is talking about. Biblical wrath is God's right punishment being poured out on sin. It's a legal term. This is the crime. This is the just and right punishment. The second reason we hate the idea of God's wrath is because we believe that people are inherently good. Or we've adopted what I like to call an Avengers view of the world. You guys are familiar with the Avengers movies, the Marvel movies? That's kind of how we view humanity. There's some villains, and they're evil, and they're wicked, and they probably deserve God's wrath. Like today, Putin would be like, you know, a leading candidate for that position in our world. Look how, what he's doing, look how awful it is, look at all of the damage and pain and death he's causing. He's evil, he deserves God's wrath. And then we have heroes. Maybe President Zelensky is that guy right now. And look how brave he is and look how he's uniting the people. He's a superhero. And then everyone else is innocent bystanders. And the problem is, Christianity rejects this view of humanity. Christianity asserts that there is no one that stands innocent before God, that all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory, all have rebelled against God, and therefore, without Christ, justly stand condemned. One of the popular phrases, I'm sure you've heard this before, is, um, I'm not religious, but I am a good moral person. Have you guys heard that? Like, I I'm good, I'm just not religious. Well, can we play that, the logic of that out really quickly? Like, again, you do what you do and you feel what you feel because you think what you think. If you believe there is no God, then being good and moral is about as good as we can do, right? 
you just try to be kind to others, you try to be a, a benefit to society, that's about as good as we can hope for if there is no God. But what if there is a God? And what if we were created to know him, to love him, to worship him, and to walk in relationship with him? If that is what is true, if that is our reality, then to deny God a relationship with him, even if we're good and moral, it's not a good thing, it's condemnable. It's wicked. If there is a God and our purpose is to love him and worship him and know him, if we refuse to give him those things, it doesn't matter if we're kind or good to our neighbor, we're still rebelling against our creator and our created purpose. Christianity is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive to Christ and into relationship with their creator. It's condemnable. The fact that God punishes sin does not make him evil. It makes him just and good and mature Christians embrace the reality that God is not mocked. The third thing we need to know is its redemption. Look at verse 8. He says this. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See what Paul's doing here? He's reminding them of who they were, and he's reminding them of the first three chapters. He's like, you were darkness. You were like everyone else. You were dead in your trespasses, separated from God. But look at what God has done for you, that you've been saved, restored, redeemed, cleansed, made new, given a new spirit. And I love this idea that we are united with Christ. He, he, he's saying that God resides in you, that Christ is in us and we are in Christ and we are united. So I've been thinking this week, how do I really give a good analogy of what it means to be united with Christ? And here's the best I came up with. Throw up the next slide. So on the screen right there is a picture of my son Judah. He's the blonde and uh, his best friend, Eli. All right, they are quintessential best friends. If you were to find Judah and say, Judah, who's your best friend? Instantly, it's Eli. And uh, whenever they're together, it's like that. They're just hip and hip. And we had the opportunity over my sabbatical last summer to spend a week at Florida with, with uh, Eli and his family. And um, the entire week, they were together, right? They have to have matching shark tooth necklaces. And if they were at the beach, they were at the beach together. And, and if they were at the um, downtown, they were downtown together. If they were watching movies, they were watching movies together. They were united. Throw up the next picture. Uh, this is a picture we caught of them while we were getting ice cream, licking the store window together, right? We're in public, we're downtown, we're like, what are Jude and Eli doing? They're licking the window, right? I'm not saying it's always amazing that they're united, but they are united, they are a team, they are together, and that's a picture of what it means to be united with Christ, that we are so closely connected to Christ that when God sees us, he sees his perfect son, Jesus, that he is with us always, that he resides in us and us in him and God delights in us just like he delights in his son. Paul is reminding them again of who they are in Christ and the new power they have over sin. All right, let's keep going. Look at verse 10. He says this and he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look at verse 15. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
All right, the third thing we need to do is, is we need to know the times and we need to walk in wisdom. We need to know the times. We need to walk in wisdom. Look at verse 15 again. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And church, one of the challenges of following Christ is, is that only about 20% of life is black and white, sin or not sin, right and wrong. 80% is living in the gray and trying to live in wisdom and make the best decision and honor the Lord and do the right thing, even when there's a bunch of options. So like an example of this is I've had people come and ask, you know, hey, Pastor Cal, do you think God only has one specific person that I need to marry? And if I don't find them, I'm ruined forever. And I'm like, no, I, I don't believe that. And God does absolutely give standards for marriage. They should be a believer, all of these things. But there's a bunch of different people you can marry, but you need to use wisdom because you're not going to be a good fit with everyone. Right? I've had people give, say, hey, I've got job advice. Should I take this job? And I'm like, well, this isn't a matter of sin or not sin, but we need to use wisdom. Is it going to take too much time away from your family? Are you gifted in these things? We need to live with wisdom practically. So what I want to do right now is I want to ask us three wisdom questions that will help us determine if we're walking in wisdom. Here's the first. We need to ask ourselves, am I doing the right thing for the right reasons? Am I doing the right things for the right reasons? We need to check our motives. Verse 17 says, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So if it's God's will for me to love others with a sacrificial humility, then I need to ask myself, am I doing what I'm doing with the right heart? Like, let me give you an example. If I show up to work and I see Sean Common, Sean's on staff with us. He oversees a lot of our, our volunteers and coaches small groups. And, and I'm like, you know what? I swung by the, the coffee shop on the way over and I got you an extra cup of coffee, Sean. Here, here's a coffee. It's on me. Have a great day. Right? And, and if my motives behind that is, you know what? I want Sean to tell everyone how great of a boss I am. And I want him to go home and I want him to tell his wife, man, Holly, dude, Cal was amazing. He got me a free cup of coffee. This place is the best. Cal's so loving. And I want him to go tell his small group, dude, Cal's amazing. He just gave me a free cup of coffee. Isn't he such a great guy? And I want my reputation to flow through the Tri-Cities as this great boss and great leader. I'm doing the right thing, but for terrible motivations, right? Like church, you know you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, right? But if my motivation is, is man, Sean's working hard. He's been faithful. He's doing a great job. I just want to be a bless, blessing and, and know that I'm thankful for him. Then it's doing the right thing for the right reasons. Kids are terrible at this. Like kids just give up their bad motives all the time. I remember this week, I've been encouraging Bo to play sports with Judah and include him when he's playing sports. Judah starting to like sports and Bo loves sports and is way better. So I'm like, include your brother, teach him, be, be a good older brother. And uh, this week they were playing basketball in their room. And they were playing and they were giggling. They were getting along great, having a great time. And, and when they came down, I said, hey, Bo, you know what? I'm really proud of you. You were kind to your brother. You included him. Thank you for doing that. And he goes, yeah, I, I'm pretty great, aren't I? I'm like, well, you were until you said that, right? Like you just ruined it. Um, right things, right reasons. Here's the next one. Am I listening to wise counsel? Am I listening to wise counsel? And there's really two parts to this. First, I need to ask the question, am I surrounding myself with voices who are wise and will speak into my life? And the second, am I actually listening to them? I've told this story a while ago. Um, when I was in college, I had a friend who started dating a girl, and um, it was one of those relationships where when they dated, rather than becoming better people, they became worse people. And they fought, and they were miserable, and he was depressed. It was not a healthy relationship. 
and they got engaged. And it wasn't getting better, it was getting worse. And finally, me and my roommate, we sat this guy down and we're like, don't marry this girl. Here's all of the issues in your relationship. We're worried about you. This thing doesn't seem healthy. And they actually got in a big fight and they broke up right before Thanksgiving break. And I was like, hey, come up to Michigan with me. Like, come hang out with my family. He didn't have family in the area and he was just going to stay on campus. And I'm like, come to Michigan. It'll get your mind off the breakup. We'll have fun. You can have Thanksgiving with my family. And he was like, no, no, no. I just want to stay in the city. And I knew that was a problem because I knew the girl was also staying in the city for Thanksgiving. And by the time we got back from Thanksgiving break, they had gotten back together. And then it was just awkward, right? Because we had said, like, this was the best decision of your life to break up. We're so happy about it. And now they're together. And shockingly enough, I wasn't invited to the wedding right? Didn't make the invite list that it was, hey, I've heard you. I'm just not listening. There's so many people, maybe you have a great small group, you go to church, you surround yourself with wise counsel, but it's so obvious that at the end of the day, you're just going to do what you're going to do and you're not going to listen. Proverbs 12:15 says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Can I ask you a simple question? Are you living with wisdom or are you living like a fool? Here's the third wisdom question. It's this, is am I flexing my discipline muscles? Am I flexing my discipline muscles? Am I living a life with discipline? And to explain this, I need to explain what's happening in my life right now. So Mary and I have started running and uh, we got a treadmill. And so three or four times a week, I run on the treadmill. And here's what you need to understand about me. I loathe running. I absolutely hate every second I'm running. When I'm on the treadmill, there's two thoughts in my head. One, I hate my life. And two, when does this get to be over? That's all I'm thinking the entire time. And let's be honest, there is nothing worse in life than friends who run, isn't there? Like they are the absolute worst because they're like, oh, it's so fun and it's such a stress relaxer and you're really going to learn to enjoy it. They're lying. You know that, right? Like if someone tells you that, you look at them and you say, get behind me, Satan, right? You're not telling the truth. You're leading me astray. And then what's even worse is once you do start running, they're like, oh, that's so amazing. I'm so proud of you. That's what I told my kids when they got potty trained, right? It's so demeaning and humiliating. It's the worst. I hate running. But this week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I'm running. Why? Well, I don't actually totally know why it's awful and I hate it, but what I like to tell myself is I'm growing in discipline and it's actually something that's good for my soul because it's good for me to say yes to things that are good for me that I don't inherently want to do. And it's good for me to sometimes say no to things that I want to do, but might not be sinful things, but might not be helpful things. And here's why. Paul's logic is the days are evil. And so I get worried about people that just drift through life doing whatever they want to do, living without discipline, because they're going to drift towards evil, or they're going to drift towards just becoming callous to the Lord and drift towards the ways of the world. And think about all of the good things in our relationship with Christ. Think about developing a vibrant prayer life. That doesn't just happen by accident, does it? It takes discipline. Think about building deep Christian relationships. That doesn't happen by accident where there's accountability and prayer for one another and true fellowship. It takes discipline. It takes commitment. Think about getting in God's word and growing in your knowledge of him. It takes discipline. And so what I want to ask myself is, am I living with discipline? Because what we do with our bodies sometimes does have an impact on our soul. 
Fourth thing we need to know is we need to know the Spirit and we need to walk in thankfulness. Look at verse 18. He says this, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul does something interesting here. He contrasts drunkenness with being filled with the Spirit. And he does it for a couple reasons. Like, the first reason is, is drunkenness makes us out of control and causes us to make terrible, selfish decisions. Like, I've been a pastor for a long time. I still have never had that conversation where it's like, man, I made all these amazing decisions when I was drunk last night. Right? I've had a lot of the other type of conversations, never that one. And what the Spirit does or is it causes us to live with self-control. And what drunkenness does, what alcohol is, it's a depressant. Do you know what that means? It's not that it makes you depressed, but it actually works chemically to depress our brain. So, so if we're stressed or we're anxious, what alcohol will do is it will depress those feelings so we can feel more relaxed. And sometimes what alcohol is, it's a cheap substitute for what the Spirit should be producing in our lives. Like there's people that are like, man, I can't be happy or relaxed or I'm always stressed out and anxious unless I have a drink or two in me. But what the Spirit does is it doesn't depress anything or take anything away. It actually opens our eyes and makes us alive to everything we have in Christ. The Spirit's job is to make Jesus great and remind us of all that he has done in our lives. And the Holy Spirit makes us alive to those things. And the result is thankfulness. Look at this. It says, addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think of this idea of being filled with the Spirit, church, don't think of like having a cup that's empty and I need something from outside to come fill it up. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit resides in our hearts. Think about an oil field in Texas. There is a fountain of oil running underneath the surface that's always there. What we need to do to be filled is, is we need to drill into the ground and allow that to come overflowing into our life. And some of you are like, man, I don't like this idea of singing and psalms and hymns. Like, I'm not a music guy. And if I've got to do that, like, I don't know if I'm in. Like, the part I hate about church is when we have to sing. So why does Paul connect being filled with the Spirit with music? Here's why. Because God's created music to connect our heads to our hearts. Like, let me prove it to you. Think of your favorite movie. I would bet in the most dramatic moment of that movie, there's music playing. Right, think about a chick flick, right? When the girls just all of a sudden finally realize she was in love with her best friend the whole time and his best friend's about to board a train to Seattle because that's what happens in every chick flick. There's a train to Seattle that someone's taking and she's running through the streets and trying to find him and get him before it's too late. There's music playing. You know why? Because people who make movies know they're emotionally connecting you to what is happening. And what Paul is saying is, is that when we're filled with the Spirit, it's not just something we know, but our heart is connected to it. And we are so thankful for everything we've been given in Christ and his love and his power and his glory in our lives, that it's our heads, it's our hearts, and it's our actions. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to get ready to close in worship. And what a powerful way to close the service. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to use our heads. We're going to say things that are true about God. We're going to be engaged with our hearts because we're going to do it through song and we're going to be engaged with our actions, with our bodies as we lift our hands, glorify God, saying it's all about you. You are great. You are good. You are faithful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, just another powerful weekend here. I thank you for your spirit. I thank, 
thankful that you are present with us right now. And even as we worship, we are not engaging with someone who's far away, but we are engaging with you who is near, that you are closer than a friend, that we are united with Christ. All of these things are true. So God, I just would ask right now for a really special moment in worship where we lift your name high, where you take your right place in our hearts. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.